Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This episode will be more of our normal style of conversation over a text um, from uh, the early part of Christian theology, and we will be dealing with the first female writer um, of Christian antiquity, that is Perpetua uh, and Felicity. So this is the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, which includes a first-hand account from Perpetua and Felicity. Uh, we will be discussing various aspects of this um, account, uh, but uh, interestingly, we'll talk about the place of martyrdom, how often Christians were martyred. We'll do a little bit on that. Uh, we will talk about whether or not we can uh, say that God is sufficiently uh, present with these women. Um, we, we get a little critical, but we also you know try to um, read within, um, within the framework of the text. And so hopefully um, this will be illuminating on the question of what it was like for Christians to be martyred, whether they were martyred, and how we can look um, faithfully with these women and see uh, that God is present, uh, even though it looks to some like he might not be. So we hope that you appreciate this episode. Um, please uh, rate us, review us on iTunes if you would. You know, tell your friends um, who you think might be interested, um, and any suggestions on things that you'd like us to talk about, uh, we would uh, welcome. So find us on Facebook. Let us know. Uh, we appreciate you listening. And we are doing the uh, well. The I I've been calling it the martyrdom of perpetual infelicity um, in one of the titles of the text. It's also called the passion, uh, that is the suffering, um, of Perpetua and Felicity. Um, this is, uh, if you want a full sort of historical introduction, um, I do give one in the Africans against the world podcast, uh, which what I it was a class that I was teaching at my church, but we're going to try to go more in depth in the text than I was able to do in that class. Um, and we'll probably even go more in depth on the history, but if you want a real quick overview, um, you could also check out that, uh, podcast. Uh, but suffice it to say, this is the, um, second oldest, uh, martyrdom narrative from North Africa. There's another one that has very, it was very sparse in detail. And actually the people die in Italy. They just happen to have come from Africa. So this is the first one that records persecutions in Africa. Um, and it's two women. Um, and uh, the f the bulk of the writing is done from the pen of Perpetua, who was a noble woman, um, and she records her experience of going through persecution um, and suffering. And that's the um, you know that's the bulk of the narrative. There's someone wrote an introduction and a little bit of a conclusion, and we don't know who wrote it. We think probably her brother or maybe Tertullian. Um, but the other thing that really fascinates me about this text um, that is sort of um, that's hard to explain is that there was a full fledged Christian community in North Africa. And we basically don't know how or wh where it came about. Tertullian writes um, about the same time as this. He was born in the middle part of the second century, um, around 160 uh, or 70. And then so like when he is kind of an adult, he starts writing a lot. Uh, that's about the same time as this text, which is 203. Um, and Tertullian records that there are Christians all over Carthage, modern day um, Tunisia, and also in modern day uh, Morocco and Algeria. There seem to be Christians just kind of all over um, uh, North Africa. And we don't know how. And in this story, Perpetua is a noble woman and she is um, in the process of becoming a Christian. Um, and there seems to be a bishop, there seems to be a deacon, there seems to be a, a catechist, someone who's teaching people how, uh, of the faith. 
Um, and there are all these things, but we don't really know the history before Tertullian and before these two martyrdom accounts of where they all came from. Um, so it's, you know, that's just one of these great mysteries of, of North Africa. Uh, but that's that's enough by way of introduction. We could we could talk about that. Uh, but I've I've done a lot of talking on, on this text um, in my class. But I'm I'm curious. Uh, uh, just starting off, um, you know, Tom Trevor, uh, things that you were um, that you were curious about uh, that you were uh, that you had like that you enjoyed. I don't know. I'll let's see. Should we we could start with Tom? Tom, did you have any place that you particularly wanted to go first? Uh, not specifically one. Well, I mean, not specifically wanted to go per se. There were two things. One is a question, and one is just kind of an observation. Um, and the question, I think, you know, I think my memory is just getting much worse now than it used to be. Um, but have we done any readings uh, written by a woman to this point, Chad? No, we have not. Uh, we've had readings about women, but yeah, no, nothing from. So this is the first work that is penned by a woman. Uh, so yeah. aside from the one on the perpetual virginity of Mary last week, what have we read about women? Because that's what I'm trying to remember. I remember doing something. We did Methodius on the virgins. Methodius on the virgins. Okay, I thought there was something about a specific woman a while back. That's. Just maybe it's something hmm. we talked about but never did or something along those lines. I don't quite remember. That's the one that – I mean we talked a little bit about Monica with Augustine. Yeah, yeah I, I remember I, that. The only one I could think of is Methodius, and we did vir virginity with Methodius. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, so that was kind of the uh, – that's the question I had, just trying to, trying to remember. Um, I think actually it's called the symposium, but yeah, anyway, from Methodius, but yeah. Uh, then my observation, uh, aside from the fact, of course, that we obviously have not collected a lot of uh, writings from early women in the church, uh, is just this thing that seemed to have existed there in the first uh, two centuries of church history, where there was this deep, like, felt desire um, for every Christian, it seems. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure not every, but at least from what we've read, for people to actually get martyred, like... Um, it, it, it's, it's weird to me the way that, that so much of this piece is like coming from the perspective, both in both Perpetua's perspective, but as well as her fellow prisoners, um, whose names are going to escape me. We might want to review those. I know obviously Felicity being one, but then there was a, a man with them as well. Um, so yeah, there are at least three men's name who start with S. Yeah, um, that are <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. Um, and all of them, th they were uh, deeply concerned that they get this opportunity to fulfill their martyrial duty. Almost like martyrdom is like a duty for them uh, to achieve. I mean, I think in particular, and I'm probably getting way too far ahead, but Felicity, of course, is pregnant when she's arrested. And right. she has to give birth. And there comes a moment when she's um, she's crying. She's sad because she's worried that they won't let her get martyred um, because she's pregnant. Of course, uh, at first I was a little put off by that. But then I read that what she really wanted to avoid was um, being killed later with common criminals. That if she was going to be killed, she wanted to be killed with her friends who are brothers and sisters, not... Um, not being spared for the time being and then killed with a bunch of common criminals later. So that like lessened the blow of it. But for me, 
it's like reading this, and I, I think back to, of course, um, Ignatius of Antioch, one of the right. first, one of the first guys we read, and how every stop in the empire that he went, uh, he kept writing letters telling people not to try to interfere with his martyrdom. That he was getting to go to this, you know, uh, getting to walk basically the same steps as his savior. Which don't get me wrong, I value martyrdom and I respect it a lot. I just don't know that it should be an aim. Um, and so anyway, that's kind of the observation and maybe kind of a point to consider as we start. Yeah. yeah I, well, uh, go ahead, Trevor. Yep. Oh, yeah. I just had similar feelings. Like I was like, man, this is like a really, really weird fetishism of martyrdom. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I could not. Yeah. It was very hard for me to stomach. From being, And I, I tried to have the same sort of opinion though. I was like, well, you know, in a way these people are heroes because they're being persecuted at a time when, it's you know i was trying to compare it to like other persecutions i guess in my mind i'm like yeah okay and like this is like a a voluntary you know creedal faith it's not even like a, a people group um in a way and so they're and so it's very brave for them to do this um but yeah it was the way it was talked about i was like yeah you guys are overselling it it's a little <laughs> a little over the top maybe Maybe say it like it is, like it was bad and they died, but geez Louise, like, oh, I really want to die specifically like in this way, like so that I need to suffer even worse because it'll be it'll be more like unto the Lord's suffering. I'm just like, oh, geez Louise, really? Like, <laughs> it's not great. I, I just, yeah, it was disturbing. Yeah, well, I would, uh, so the only sort of... Um response I would have actually doesn't even come from this text, but in the martyrdom of Polycarp, he explicitly says, don't seek martyrdom. Oh, um, and th what's that? I said, Oh, that's good. That's just a good, good statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, that of course comes from uh, Asia minor and that's a different place. Like this is not a North, that's not a North African text. Um, and it seems the little, the North Africans were a little bit more, um, I don't know. Um, uh, like gung ho <laughs> about martyrdom. Um, but uh, yeah. So anyway, there there is a there is a strand of early Christianity from um, Polycarp, and that gets picked up a lot by Eusebius and others uh, who would say that we we don't seek martyrdom, but we will be martyred if that comes to that. Um, and so I think that becomes sort of the predominant thread um, in in some of the later writers, uh, but it even has a has a um, ha has a witness uh, in in uh, Polycarp. But you know, yeah, I mean, it is here. Well, and I mean, just to go straight to the end and to both of your point, I mean, it basically implies that Perpetua almost killed herself. I mean, like the guy puts the sword to her and she takes it to her throat. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it's it's a we like I, the implications seem pretty clear that like the guy wasn't really gonna kill her and she was like just do it, um, yeah, yeah that's yeah <laughs> yeah well I mean, I and it, listening to it it made me think of uh, do you guys recall I mean I don't I think it was last year um, maybe the year before there was a um, uh, a young man named John Chow who was uh, wanting, he went to North Sentinel Island uh, and wanting to preach the gospel to 
basically a remote tribe of people who hadn't heard it and was killed upon arrival. Um, do you guys recall that story? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I remember there was much ado kind of on Twitter, a bunch of, uh, you know, responses. Most of them I were honestly pretty frustrating to me. Um, I felt like, you know, people, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say the guy did everything exactly right. I don't know what the right thing to do exactly is in terms of how to go about preaching the gospel to um, uh, an unreached people group. Um, but I admired the man's tenacity and his commitment. And um, especially in light of the fact that I would never consider doing something like that. Um, so I had a great deal of admiration for him. And I also knew that he understood that he could die. And I admired that and his courage in that. Um, and I was pretty disappointed that a lot of the conversations um, took the turn of, you know, kind of criticizing him as an imperialist and spreading, you know, Western culture or whatever. If the gospel is Western culture, then let's spread it. Um, but, you know, as far as that goes, I was pretty put off by those responses. Um, was he foolish is a question that I kept asking myself, though. Was there a wiser way he could have gone about it? Um, not as a criticism, just wondering, like, in terms only in the abstract sense of, for future generations, for for later missionaries, what is the right way to try to approach this? But all this to say, I admired him for what he did, but I would have been pretty frustrated if his approach was, well, we should go and get martyred, right? So I, I should say all of this um, has, and oh, and I should throw in Cyprian as well. Uh, I don't yeah. remember if we read it with Cyprian, but, um, you know, Cyprian... Uh, no, 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 no. Sorry. I was thinking something else with Cyprian, not Cyprian. It's an old anecdote that I heard about, um, oh, what's his name? The, uh, Alexandrian guy, um, origin or origin, origin. There was an old, uh, anecdote that I heard. I don't know if this is true where origin's father was being carried off into martyrdom and his mother hid origin's clothes. This was when he was an adolescent so that he wouldn't go out and also seek martyrdom at the same chance. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, so it's like, I, you know, so it's like, there is this, this sentiment that like, I respect and admire martyrdom and I respect and admire the bravery of somebody like, you know, uh, John Chow, who's willing to, to put his life on the line. But I also don't, I, I, I don't think, or I don't respect this uh, sentiment that desires martyrdom, if that makes sense, like where you're out actually seeking it. And so I think that's kind of a, a difficult line, perhaps, to kind of parse sometimes, because I wonder how many people can really embrace martyrdom if they don't, in some sense, actually desire it. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense, but... Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you well, you brought up the the origin story. Yeah, I mean, whether I, I don't know if we could ever know if it was true, but I've heard heard the same, and that's that's helpful. The other one too is is you brought up Cyprian. Well, Cyprian, we did talk about, um, and he seems to avoid martyrdom uh, for a while. Yeah, um, and then, actually, <laughs> um, and then he he is eventually martyred. Um, so this all, but you know, so the psychological. So there there are sort of two questions that we could, or two two ways that we could turn is sort of like 
Tom brought up basically the psychological element. Um, so psychologically, what goes on in these people uh, that seem to be, if not outright seeking uh, to die for their faith, um, are at least pretty, ten, you know, pretty tenacious, pretty willing. Um, and then there are other people who are sort of ambivalent or try to, to eschew it as much as possible. Maybe Cyprian, maybe Polycarp, um, who are kind of like hesitant, um, but ultimately end up there anyway. Um, so that's sort of one conversation. The other one that's that we'll need to have um, is just to uh, um, sort of allude to the fact or uh, to to at least state the fact that there were not widespread persecutions of Christians at this point in Christian history. So the Decian and Diocletian persecutions, uh, which happened in 215 and, uh, and 313 or 250, excuse me, um, and uh, the first part of the fourth century, I think. I want to say it's like 311 or 312. Um, at those sort of more wholesale persecutions are later. Um, so this is even at a time when, um, you know, you can think about the emperor uh, or, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, the uh, letter of um, Trajan uh, uh, to Plenty the Younger or Plenty the Younger to Trajan, uh, where he says, like, what are we supposed to do about these Christians? And they're like hesitant um, to seek them out. But if they're made known, they say, okay, uh, yeah, well you can, you can, you know, you can punish them if they, if they make themselves known. Um, but can I, make, can I respond yeah. to that real quick, Chad? Yeah. Only, so this is, this is something I've, I've heard a lot of scholars really take great pains to emphasize, um, the, the point you just made. And I, I think the point is right. It's not like I'm challenging the point at all. I, I, for sure, there were not widespread persecutions empire-wide uh, under the decree of the emperor uh, until, you know, maybe Decius and maybe, I heard Valerian maybe who came after him, maybe that carried on Decius's. And then of course the Diocletian Galerian uh, persecutions, which was the great persecution. But I, I feel like oftentimes um, it is understated the degree to which persecution did happen because there wasn't this widespread um, uh, empire-wide persecution. Because uh, I've always thought that the that the letter from Pliny to Trajan uh, it actually underscored rather the fact that that the the different procurators and the different proconsuls had the inclination to persecute the Christians anyway, and in particular because what we do know is that it was law that if put to the test, you did have to sacrifice to the genius of the emperor. And so anybody who was held in, where, where their their um, loyalty was held in question would be subject to that. Um, and uh, so what, what Pliny's letter tells me is always something a little different from what I feel like people take from it, which is that this is actually something that's happening quite a lot. And he's just asking the emperor for advice on how to proceed. And I feel like the emperor's response isn't um, all that much more affirmative of what I think people's stances has been. I think the emperor's saying, hey, yeah, yeah, don't seek them out. Let's not like cause problems. Sure. But he does say, but if they if they're causing a problem, which early Christians did, he says, then you got to do what you got to do and you got to put them to death. And so I feel like it's probably more widespread than people think. And the other reason I think this is because, of course, it is the testimony of the first two centuries of the church. Like, that's their story about, or first three centuries, about their existence in the Roman Empire. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think it was empire-wide. And yeah, I don't think it was like like tens of thousands or something along those lines. But I do think that um, 
the modern sentiment among scholars to try to downplay it, I, I almost don't even understand. Like every year I go to the, to the um, Coliseum and I'm not joking, like two thirds of the conversations that the guides have with us are basically arguments they're presenting on why Christians didn't die in the Colosseums and on why it's doubtful whether or not there was very serious persecutions at all, whether or not Christians were even killed. And, and I always wonder what is fueling and motivating that, um, especially because I know the sources they're looking at and the sources they're looking at are the ones that tell us that Christians were killed. Um, so I always feel like there is this thing in academia today which wants to downplay the persecution of Christians. And I just don't, I think I just don't buy in general the point they're making. Or I, I should say, I agree in substance that there wasn't an empire-wide persecution. But what I think they're doing is I think they're making much broader claim than is warranted. Well, to respond uh, slightly, um, I, I think it's a helpful corrective and a reminder uh, that you know, go go back to the sources. Um, yeah. So you teach you teach at a classical school. Um, you know, I'm a scholar who uh, does some of this sort of stuff, like going back to the sources um, and teach. You know, taught at the same school. And one of the things that I learned a lot from my time at Ambrose was just the importance of making sure you knew where you know where your stories were coming from. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's why we're doing this in general. That's why we got did this podcast um, was to go back to the sources and read it for ourselves. Um, so I think that's a good admonition. Um, I, I guess I would just um, all I would say is that, yeah, scholars do make this point. So I was just bring it up. I was reading a little bit of Candida Moss's The Myth of Persecution, um, and she has made herself famous for not only saying that. Uh, that it wasn't maybe as widespread as we thought, uh, but that it didn't happen at all is what she says. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And she basically makes a name for herself by making the most outlandish claim that she can make. Um, and uh, and mm. then, yeah, she sort of stands on that and says, hey, look, this never happened. Interestingly, um, she does not deal with any of this evidence, but there's a scholar who I have some quibbles with, uh, Ramsey McMullen, but he did a whole work where he basically showed that in North Africa, most sort of non-elite, well, what he would call non-elite Christians, that is uh, uneducated Christians, they were Christians that gathered around sites of mar of dead martyrs. Mm -hmm. um, and so he said, so his whole argument is to say that Christianity um, the kind of intellectual Christianity of Augustine was a small percentage of the people and they probably didn't understand him. And I disagree with that part. But what's interesting is he uncovers the archaeological evidence that shows there were tons of persecutions. Yeah. Um, and, and not only were there tons of persecutions, all the basilicas, um, or at least most of the basilicas in North Africa, were built around other dead martyrs. Um, and that is like, I mean, you know, it's just so, I mean, you could, you know, just the same that uh, the Romans and Cato wanted to sow salt in the fields of North Africa. I mean, the Romans sowed the fields with the blood of Christians just seems to be true um, in North North Africa and, and actually the source of a lot of piety. Um, that's where a lot of Christians gathered to remember those that were lost as a way of resisting the sort of empire uh, that sought to, to kill them. Yeah. You know uh, that the, that, that, woman that you referenced, I, I didn't catch her name or don't remember. Candida Moss. Yeah. Uh, that's what my tour guides in Rome, in both the Forum and in the Colosseum, 
this last year asserted. They essentially asserted that there was no persecution. So, I mean, she has been widely panned by scholars of, of the course. field. Like nobody agrees with her. <laughs> the, the weird thing yeah. me, the, the, now I'm going to sound and everybody, I'm not like this. I'm not one of those guys who thinks, um, you know, the whole world is against Christians or anything like that. I'm not like a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe, of course, as a Christian, that we're caught in a cosmic struggle between God and evil and the devil and all of that. And I just, it seems to me that this is just a devilish bit of, again, not the real scholarship, which I acknowledge, like any, you know, the points that are made, I totally agree with, but just this, this seeming cultural move to try to erase the fact of martyrdom as like the birthplace of the church, which I don't even understand what that does for them, for people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know what advantage or like, it seems so important to them. Like, it's just so strange to me. Like, like I said, two thirds, we're in the Colosseum and the Roman forum and fully two thirds of the conversation we have are about that, which make hardly any sense at all. I mean, um, one of the early points they make is, is that Christians in general weren't killed in the Colosseum, if at all, which I actually will probably concede that point. I don't think the Colosseum was principally a place used for killing Christians. So it's like, okay, well, why are we spending two thirds of our time talking about it? You know what I mean? It just seems really like a spiritual battle kind of thing going on to me. Do you think that's a culture of that area as well, though? Like a Very well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, um, so this is an interesting text to me on any number of le of levels. There's a lot of stuff about masculinity, femininity. Um, there's a lot of, of um, you know, just this question of like sh they're insistent that God is faithful, um, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, it's it's sort of. Um, I think in a modern context, it can be hard to explain. Okay, we're going to tell the stories of these two women who are early mothers um, and who believe that the telling the story of their death is a demonstration of God's faithfulness. Um, so uh, and they so like I mean, the from the first line, if the old examples of the faith, which testify to the grace of God and lead to the edification of men were written down so that by reading them, God should be honored and man comforted in, uh, as if through a reexamination re-examination of those deeds should we not set down new acts that serve each purpose equally um so this is intended to be a a record of how god is faithful to women who are killed as a spectacle um and men who are killed as a spectacle for uh we think as the son gata as the son of, Se of severus the emperor um we think it was a festival for his birthday um and you know, so it's sort of like on the face of it, it would be a hard case to make to say this is evidence of God's faithfulness. Um, so I, I guess how, how would we how do how would you respond? How does the text respond to that kind of question? <laughs> I, I think the text responds um, by holding up a different economy. Right. I mean, I think and I think that ultimately that's what that's what the gospel and that's what the scriptures and that's what you know christian teaching has always done it's always recognized that the faithfulness of god doesn't mean what the world we live in thinks it means right um the world that we live in gauges success one way and the uh kingdom of god gauges success seemingly another way right and we see this in obviously the teachings of jesus 
you know, whoever would be first must be last. Um, if you want to become, you know, great, you must become a servant of all. Um, it's just a different economy in terms of what's valued. And um, whereas in the world economy, life is valued in the sense of, and, and I need to kind of explain, in the sense of like long life and success in life, uh, in the kingdom, um, a submission to the point of death is valued, right? It's, it's, uh, it's laying my life down for my brother, which is the thing that, uh, that is most honorable. And as Jesus is also my brother and is the brother of these martyrs, they lay their lives down for him as just as he laid his life down, lives down, his life down for them. And so what it does is it exalts them. So it's like when you read this text, what you really do see at the end of it with them all dying is it's written as if it's a victory, right? I mean, and as much as it doesn't set well with me, their desire for martyrdom, I love the the format of the of the work, which which basically you know paints them as conquering heroes even as they're dying. Yeah, I it. I mean, one of the things that clued me into why the the sort of attitudes of the martyrs was such was that they refer to martyrdom as a um, way of receiving grace. It's actually one of the ways God gives grace to people. Um, yeah, and, it's the, they call it a second baptism at a few points. Yeah, and, and it's right in the beginning as well. Um, lest any person who is weak or despairing in their faith should think that only the ancients received divine grace, either in the favor of martyrdom or of revelations. And then he's sort of saying, actually no it happens now as well um so it's like this attestation that god's still doing things in the world which i so that sort of set me up I'm like okay we're seeing that god's still doing things um and that makes sense i can get behind that but then um yeah but that martyrdom was then this yeah sort of it, it must be some sort of means of grace um Though, of course, it didn't make it into any of the sacraments <laughs> um, that are officially listed. But it, it made me think, when I started really thinking about that, I was, I was really trying to like think about grace in its other forms and what, and what it would mean, whether, whether or not I agreed with like the uh, psychological health of the people <laughs> as they're described in this text i was like thinking to myself like okay but what would it really how would it really be that if if it were such a thing and i yeah i just thought about the fact that when there there was a time when people just did crazy heroic acts where their lives were very uncertain when they lived in a time when in general their lives were uncertain like the you know the more ancient world was just a world of like less security i guess the way to say it <laughs> there's a lot less security in many ways and um of course like we're sort of i think sensitized um, a lot of people say we're desensitized, but there's like a lot of arguments that we're exposed to like way less violence actually. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, there was a lot more real violence, um, 
that they saw on a day-to-day basis. And it made me think I probably am just not culturally prepared to see this the way they see it. And what helped me kind of actually think through it as a, as a, uh, what you might say, uh, an example of the faithfulness of God was actually thinking of Lord of the Rings (laughs) because in Lord of the Rings, it's like, there's a lot of times when they out of sort of this idea that like there's this goodness in the world worth fighting for they like just charge into battle and i'm like and of course then it's easy to celebrate and i was like wait this is sort of the same thing though this is like exactly the same thing like they know that there is a god and that this god uh, is of a certain character and thus they're more than willing to do this because it's also going to benefit the church um, overall, which it did. Like it just practically it did. I mean, you could, it, in the same way, you know, other nonviolent uh, protests and other persecutions in the world um, aided those movements. It, it had to have aided the church because I would, because people would see that, you know, Hey, why are we even killing these people? They're not even doing anything. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not. They're not even hurting anyone. So, in at, like when I really like thought through all the implications, I was like, "This makes sense." Though it is hard for me to like wrap my head around. I mean, still. But. Yeah, um, I mean, I just was trying to go through and find some of the interesting things. You know, I I think part of the grace of God, even in the death, is sort of how they take it. So um, Tom said, you know, they wanted to fight together. Uh, The women like and one of them, uh, Perpetua, doesn't want her hair down. So she I like I I could just feel like you could draw a great comic book of this. Um, And there's like Perpetua, like guarding herself so she's not showing her being immodest and she's putting up her hair into a bun because she doesn't want to be down. Um, And then she just stands up and says, you know, sees this man coming at her with a sword and says, I'll take, you know, whatever you bring on, I'm ready for. And they, they, they sort of like, they make some of these claims um, in uh, about her having like the spirit of a man, or they almost have like manly elements to them basically because there wasn't a category in the ancient world for a woman to be manly in the same way as a man. Um, So they have to sort of ascribe to her manly virtues. Um, And some say that um, this like strips them of their gender. And, you know, to me, it almost heightens it. It's almost like saying like, no, these women are, are like in their, they are clearly women. Um, There's no question. They are giving birth. They are, you know, they even describe how hard their breasts are um, because they're full of milk. Uh, It's describing Perpetua, but these are absolutely women. Um, and there's no question of their sort of femininity, uh, but they are also strong like men. They, they can be both, uh, be totally a woman and be brave as a man, um, which I, I think is actually sort of celebrating them, not intended to denigrate them, which is, is another way that it's read. Well, and Chad, you know, you're, you're the Latin, the Latin guy, but, um, uh, you know, could that be a translational thing when it talks about them being manly or having manly virtue? Because, of course, the Latin word, and I know you know this, it's just for everybody else, but <laughs> yeah. it's uh, uh, virtus or virtus, right? Um, which is connected to the word vir, man. Uh, and I know when I when I was taking Latin back in the day, um, we were always taught that 
translating the word virtus, which is where we get our word virtue, um, you could translate it virtue, but you could easily translate it manliness because the Roman idea of virtue was tied up with the idea of the purpose of a man, of what a man was meant to be. And it's interesting because I remember when I learned that, I didn't ever hear anything distinguishing that for men and women. It was, uh, even though veer is the word for man as in like a male man, not, sorry, like a male, M-A-L-E, man, uh, <laughs> yeah. a, you know, as opposed to a female, um, uh, you know, the word virtu or virtus is still used for men and women both. And so I, I, I've never, it just occurred to me that I never really heard an explanation of of how that word was supposed to apply to women or uh, you know, maybe, or probably it's just that the word virtue probably has like a broader uh, significance than, than it would in our culture, I think maybe. Yeah. I mean, it also holds in Greek too. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. yeah. I didn't think about um, that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's an, yeah, that's a helpful point. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's just an interesting part about this because you can't, you can't ignore the fact that they're women yeah. um, and right. you, you can't look o- overlook that at all. But this whole story is about them at, going into battle. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's again, not the place where a woman quote unquote belongs, yeah. uh, but that's what they're being celebrated for. Yeah. Well, and just to clarify too, I mean, those points you bring up about the woman, about, you know, having been pregnant, giving birth, uh, having the hardened breast, picking up, you know, putting her hair up and, and making sure they're covered modestly. Like, like there is a clear sense in this text in which they're emphasizing just how brave these women are as women, right? That, that these women are doing things that a man in that situation wouldn't even be able to do, let alone be called upon to do, right? And that the text really does seem to be highlighting that the the you know to whatever degree part of it was written by perpetua or part by tertullian or by whomever else the author or authors clearly admire uh and have a great degree of respect for what these women are able to accomplish in this yeah yeah that's that's even clear just from the intro to the text because it says something like uh we announce to you our brothers and little sons, that which we have heard and touched so that you were, you, that you who were present may be reminded of the glory of the Lord, that you know it now through hearing and having, sharing with the holy martyrs, blah, blah, blah. So it's clearly like these people are like rock star status in that sense. I mean, they're, it's like, these are some of the, these will be the greats. And they probably thought that I would imagine that this would be like well-remembered, um, but of course, like only doing this podcast, have I read this and this is the first time I've heard of it, <laughs> but, um, well, it's, it's so well remembered that we have Augustine preaching on the, uh, the day that was set for their memory, uh, in March, uh, March 12th. Um, oh, I think really? that's right. Yeah. So, um, so oh. Augustine talks about this in three or four different sermons. Um, so it appears that like, uh, in the liturgical calendar, I mean, we still have this in the Catholic Church uh, today. Like, or not? I said that as if I was in the Catholic Church, but <laughs> it is still present today in the Catholic Church. They have days where they remember saints, um, and the same thing held in Augustine's time. So, about um, it, as long as two hundred years after their death, Augustine will preach on their on the day uh, that they're being remembered, and he will tell their story. 
um, and they they would read out this literal text that we're looking at. Um, and then he would also read some scripture and he would talk about the faithfulness of God and the grace of God. And, um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it is a text that, uh, was almost immediately, um, spread around North Africa and, uh, has been literally has been kept in memory in the Catholic church until the present day. Wow. I mean, less so. I mean, I would say a lot of modern day Catholics would not know the story. Uh, but if you follow the, um, you know, the calendar of, of, um, the, the church calendar, you'll know there, you know, you'd see their date every now and then if you were paying attention. Um, but yeah, I have a calendar from the Anglican communion downstairs and I'm like, really want to go look at it now, but I'll look at it later. But that's interesting. Um, it's also interesting that they are remembered because we could also bring up the fact that, okay, so the other thing about this whole text that we haven't discussed are the visions. Um, and so they go through these sort of strange visions. There's an Egyptian in there. Um, there's um, a ladder. And the, the beginning of the text quotes uh, Acts quoting Joel about uh, your, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and their sons and daughters shall prophesy. And I will pour out my spirit on my servants and handmaidens. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So uh, these women uh, see dreams, they get visions. I think this is also intended to be part of the faithfulness of God. Uh, but ne nevertheless, um, it was um, this text seems like it has hints of what was called the new prophecy or what is later called the new prophecy movement or Montanism, which was kind of which was rejected by the church. Um, and and uh, they see this might uh, be written by someone who is a part of that group. Um, but uh, yeah, these are women who are getting visions following the prophecy of Joel and Acts. And that seems to be another integral part of this text. Um, so I'll just throw that out there. Yeah, that it's it's a really like like I say, some sort of strange visions. But those visions um, give these women the faith that they or give these women the strength that they need uh, to to you know we've described their valor um, and and it, in large part it seems that it was um, predicated or was buttressed by their visions. Hey, uh, you know one thing that really struck me by those visions, um, the text indicates that. Perpetua, and I think Felicity as well, had just been baptized. In fact, I think they were uh, baptized either right before they were arrested or even right after. Did it? Was that clear? Yeah, so they're they're um, both baptized after. So they were. Um, so there was a period of forty days uh, of preparation when before Easter. So this happens before Easter, um, and uh, yeah, they were in that forty day period uh, when uh, in the in the North African Church uh, up through the time of Augustine, you could only be baptized on Easter, um, and you had to fast for forty days, and they were. Um, catechumenates they were in the catechumenate they were getting prepared for this baptism um and they hadn't had it yet but they're snuck away um they're given a baptism um in in sort of an untimely fashion uh sooner than uh, would have normally been allowed uh, and they're i think they were given a bribe to the guards to let them out to go be baptized and then they return yeah or at least they let them someone bring them or or the someone brings in water to baptize them well, so that's one of the things that I found really interesting about these visions. These are not um, experienced Christians who have been reading prophetic literature, I assume, for a long time, right? Right. Um, and that gave these, 
that gave these visions a little more um, authenticity to me, I guess. I mean, it seemed like they were just going with what they actually saw or perceived because um, the visions were very, very like something you would read in apocalyptic or prophetic literature. Um, so that, that they really, they were striking actually. Um, also they struck me as having been written by, you know, somebody who's a good writer and a good communicator, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, Perpetua was clearly educated, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They were pretty, pretty intense. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're also like rife with scriptural allusions. She's climbing the ladder. Jesus is calling her forward and she steps on a serpent, um, which sort of recalls Genesis three, um, she may be sort of enacting a kind of, I mean, uh, oftentimes that's also associated with Eve, uh, well, or excuse me, it's definitely associated with Eve, uh, but sometimes with Mary, um, being the one who kind of corrects Eve's fall. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she kind of seems to be doing the same thing. She steps on the serpent. Um, and yeah. Yeah. yeah what's the, um, the text I have says, and he called me. Like this is in the first vision and Jesus like is milking sheep uh-huh. and she comes forward and it says that from the cheese that he had milked. Yeah. And wait, I was, I was just really confused. Would, would it, is that really cheese that they're talking about there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Hmm. Well, they, they milked cheese. They milked, they milked milk and then made cheese. I presume. Right. I, yeah, so total side note, but <laughs> Hippolytus um, has a prayer for uh, the offering of cheese and olives. Um, <laughs> and so it's a th- mid-third century prayer uh, that the ancient uh, Christians used. So when they would give, uh, when they would tie to their church, if you were a farmer and didn't have like cash, um, you would just bring the produce of your land. Um, and so, um, sometimes they would just bring cheese and olives to the priests and they would bless them. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I just didn't think of cheese as a very holy food. Now I'm like, that's pretty cool. Uh, I think of it as a holy food. I I mean, (laughs) no, that's the thing. I think of it as so good that it's almost like, it's like so decadent it's evil. Like, like, and I I give it up (laughs) at times for that reason. And so... And now I'm like, wait, can I just eat cheese with reckless abandon? Because <laughs> No, you yeah. can only eat it if you pray the prayer of Hippolytus of blessing of the cheese. Okay. All right. And only, and not during Lent, presumably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. Anyway. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, you know, those are, I mean, there's, like I said, there's a lot of stuff that's just sort of interesting to give you some of the historical character of Christianity in North Africa. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know. I like, oh, they have a, they even have a love feast, right? They have an agape feast. I mean, they're still, you know, they're carrying on the uh, traditions of the church. Uh, Perpetua singing a hymn, which I thought was interesting. Um, and uh, we're, we're not exactly sure what kind of music there was at this period. Um, it seemed likely that most early Christians just memorized the Psalms. Uh, but because uh, one of the other things I would like us to talk about is some hymnody in Ambrose, which comes a little later. But but there's still some kind of, um, you know, the power of song. I mean, even that's in the New Testament as well. But um, but 
yeah, I don't know. It's a pretty. I think it's kind of a fun text. It's a, it's a, it is a strange text um, in terms of the um, oh, there's also the kiss of peace um, in here. Like, I mean, all the liturgical elements of um, Christianity uh, that that even we still see today are there in this first text that we have from North Africa. They're having an agape feast. They're baptizing. They're kissing. They're um, you know, they're, they're like, it's just, it just seems like a total Christian church that you could even step into today and have some kind of recognition of, even if it was, uh, in Latin and, you know, maybe different songs or something. Hey, uh, Chad, I have a question on that sign of peace. So I saw uh, that when I was reading through the text, there's, there's a mention kind of, uh, there, there are two mentions of the sign of peace in the first one. It just says, we gave each other the sign of peace. And in the second one, it says we gave each other the kiss of uh, peace or a kiss, the sign of peace or something like that. And I, of course, am not from a liturgical background, but I have been uh, to, of course, Catholic masses uh, with my dad growing up. I would go from time to time. I also typically go to a midnight mass, but I've also gone to Episcopal and Anglican uh, uh, services. So I'm familiar when they tell everybody to give each other the sign of peace uh, mm-hmm. at that moment in the liturgy. But then what we always do is shake hands. Um, <laughs> and so I'm curious, can either of you guys speak to kind of the evolution of that or what what that was or meant to be? Was it originally a kiss? Is that what it was? And then it evolved? Well, right. I mean, Paul mentions the kiss of peace, but um yeah, I mean, osculati invicem. Yeah, they kiss. I mean, it's the word for kiss in Latin there uh, at the end. Um, I don't know when the actual kissing falls out. It strikes me, though, that it's entirely possible, and I would just go ahead and say likely, that the um, European kissing on the cheeks is a was actually at one point just part of the kiss of peace. Um, but yeah, but that is not part of liturgical practice at any church that I've been to, um, where like they say, give the kiss of peace anymore. But that, yeah, I mean, so that is today, a, today. The sign of peace is shaking hands. Am I wrong? No. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can either, the, I've been to a church that also has, um, recommended, but it was more for people not wanting to, uh, get sick or like if you're sick it was like a recommendation but they were they were touting it as a historical thing so now i'm interested i want to know if this is true but they're saying and also like ancient way to just give peace to someone is just to like you do like the prayer hands like you'd see the monks have in the paintings and Uh you just bow you bow to someone and say the peace of christ be with you but Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's how legit that was but i was told that yeah, the orons, the the praying thing is that seems to be particular to Christians. Um, and yeah, I mean that is at least I, I know that there are images of Christians doing that in the first couple centuries after Christ. But yeah, hmm. okay, yeah. Um, Anything uh, else you guys want to bring up? Yeah, yeah, I feel like there was at least one more thing for me. I I want to know the significance um, of the like evil character in the in the the vision she has where she has to fight um why why in that vision is this uh person in egyptian fallen appearance like what is what's the significance culturally i guess there is this like hailing back to like old testament stuff or 
was there an African thing going on here of a hatred of Egyptians? <laughs> I just am curious. Yeah, as far as I know, it's it's drawing on the um, uh, the exile into Egypt um, from from the Book of Exodus. Okay, all right, that that makes sense. Um... Yeah, and I have um, one thing. So she, there's a moment when she had a vision about her deceased brother, Denocrates. Mm. Um, and it's clear that this was somewhat inspired by the fact that she was fearful for his soul um, as he had died prior to basically putting faith in Christ. Um, and so she was hoping to be able to see him in heaven again someday. And so in this vision, uh, she, she basically sees uh, him healed. Um, which she interprets like she sees him hurt and then she sees him drink from a golden cup and then he heals and his thirst, it says, was quenched and he began to play in the manner of children. And she goes, and that's when I knew he was freed from his suffering. Am I interpreting that right? I think so. Yeah. So I was in, I was intrigued and I don't know that there's much we can say about it, but just what this is telling us about Christian theology at the time of people who had died before having an opportunity to hear the gospel or independent of having had such an opportunity. Um, and so that, that was just something I found super intriguing. I don't know that we can interpret much from this. Of course, one verse that came to mind was 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, where it talks about, you know, chapter seven is about how if you are a believing husband or wife and you have an unbelieving husband or wife, that you should stay with them and that doing so, and it's a very strange verse, one that I haven't ever really been able to understand what it was exactly asserting. You sanctify each other, you sanctify the unbelieving spouse and your children are clean. That if you didn't, your children would be unclean. And so I've often kind of toyed with that verse, wondering what it means. Um, And I've often kind of thought of it as, Almost like a Christian in a in a family has like a sanctifying effect on that family, although I don't want to take that claim too far. But I'm wondering if that's essentially what she's um, reflecting, I guess, right here. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, yeah. I, well, tre- I don't know. Trevor, do you have any? No, I mean, I'm sort of processing it because I hadn't even thought about any of that until now. So I'm like kind of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I I took it as like, um, I thought she like maybe didn't know. Like maybe he had heard something beforehand and then she's just kind of given, um, given like uh, given some confidence that maybe he had been um faithful even before his death but then i don't know but then she does say something about like i'd been praying for him um there's sort of some interesting things where it seems like she's praying for him after his death um which would not be something that uh you know modern protestants would feel comfortable talking about uh well that's actually part of what i'm wondering i'm wondering if that was a clear practice early on right i mean yeah that's right. So right before seven, just before, or at the end of seven, just before eight, and I prayed day and night for my brother with groans and tears. So, well, but the, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I, I I think, yeah, I mean, it seems like they're praying for him. I mean, like, 
praying for the dead or praying even to the dead is common currency um, in North Africa and in the general Roman um, Empire. And that, um, right, I mean, uh, that's that's just that's just part of how the Romans understood the world and the focus and the center of the house and, you know, all these sorts of things, you know, you had your ancestors that you could talk to. Um, and it see it actually seems like Augustine and Ambrose are trying to get that part of, um, the piety, um, sort of, um, rem- I don't know, like removed seems strange. They want to discourage that practice. Um, and so I know that that's still going on much later. So, yeah, so I, it wouldn't surprise me, um, that, uh, that they would have thought that it was sort of okay to even pr- think about conversing with the dead mm-hmm. through prayer. Yeah. Um, now that I'm relooking at this section, like what I highlighted, um, I thought it was just weird that, so he dies at the age of seven and yet he's suffering, after his death, I found that striking to be perfectly honest, just because my idea of someone being at the age of reason is maybe um, higher. I don't know. I get. I guess I, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, man, is he like in, I, I was imagining some sort of purgatory or something um, that essentially she's praying that he like gets through quicker or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, I read it similarly, Trevor. Um, now, I mean, there's not a full-scale established idea of purgatory until much later. Um, but right. Yeah, but I couldn't imagine what else it would be. And I was thinking, and but I was thinking, like, she says, um, he died from this cancer of the face. All men who saw it loathed the manner of his death. Therefore, I prayed for him. And I'm like, is it like, I don't know, is this a weird theology where you like still, what what does the manner of his death have to do with Weiss? Like, because if it's like a moral, if it's a moral reason, I'm like, he's seven. No, like, she just, she's just talking about the fact that they were disgusted by it. That's all. That he oh. looked really bad. Yeah. It's just so a statement really about bad. how bad he looked and how like revolted people were to see him in the midst of it. So, but is that, but does that, so she brings that up, but that's not the reason she prayed for him? Because no, right after that. she says, therefore I prayed for him. And that was what confused me. Oh, I took that as like a transition word based on her whole recounting of what had happened. Oh, like, I see. So that's that how goes, I, could, I could be wrong, but yeah. Oh, that goes that. back to the earlier paragraphs, what you're saying that I saw. The whole him. paragraph. It's yeah. kind of like, she's giving the whole rundown of what happened. And then she's saying, therefore I prayed, you know. It goes back to this earlier sentence, I think, is what you're saying. Like, I saw Dinocrates coming out of a dark place where there are many others. He was very hot, thirsting. His face was covered with dirt and his skin was pale. And he had that wound on his face was where he died. Oh, by the way, this is how he got that wound. Yes. And therefore, I prayed for him. Okay, I see. Now now it makes more sense. I did. For some reason, it's because it's like I'm flipping pages and I'm reading this on a PDF that, like, I didn't keep that part of the passage in mind because I can't, like, see it. Just like, yeah clearly right there but okay that that helps um yeah it is it it is a strange passage to me i guess just because he's if he died at seven i just find that strange but well you do raise another good question there trevor that i think pops up in this text or at least you did a second ago that this does bring up a question of like 
age of accountability, right? Accountability for the gospel, moral things. I, this is the first time, or this is the earliest. I might be wrong. I don't remember that kind of question popping up in an earlier text. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty early text, right? So, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the age of the accountability thing is always like, other than the fact that I'd heard it talked about a lot because I was raised Southern Baptist, it's always seemed sort of strange. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, because it's clear, like, there's no scriptural warrant. There's not even obviously to me, like, any, like, part of the tradition that talks about an age of accountability. I guess it's David's son is one of the things that's brought up. Um, but there's like a psalm where David mentions something that, um, I, I don't know that I had heard once used in defense of the, the idea, but you know, I mean, age of accountability has other problems. Like what do we do with people with developmental disabilities or, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it doesn't, it, as it, it seems like one of those things that you posit that ends up causing other problems, um, that, and I'm not actually sure that it's all that explanatory. I agree. I actually agree, but I do think it's funny, Chad, how many people, just take it as a given, right? I mean, I've had so many people, you know, I mean, many of you guys know I've worked as a pastor in a church and I'm an elder in a church right now. I've had so many people who just like almost ex cathedra just state, well, age of accountability is eight years old, as we all know, almost yeah. as if this is something that like, <laughs> like we know, like it's like stated somewhere and like it's, and it's the, the number of people who, who like just have this fully formed theology of it is actually pretty surprising. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that I mean, I don't have like a theology, but I just think to myself like how and I'm of course just an imperfect human and of course God knows sort of the potentiality of action from someone's heart, so there's a lot more. Uh God works from a more complete knowledge set than myself. Yeah. But I think that I do think like the amount of grace I'm willing to even give to like a 17-year-old is like pretty damn great <laughs> or pretty high i should say um so i i think to myself like um you know what i i don't know i just imagine that of course god has even more mercy and grace than i do for people um in in that sense and so i think that god would um i guess i'm probably just using my own you know moral compass in a way but i i do think to myself like you know, God understands uh, people's circumstances and why they make certain decisions. And I think even for adults, sometimes we just make decisions under un imperfect knowledge. And I think God judges those acts differently. So even more so would he judge acts differently by someone who just literally didn't have the capacity. And just seven just seems like, to me, just obvious. You don't have a lot of capacities yet, but I don't know. But anyway, it was just a side... It, yeah, that that was the only thing I had highlighted from the passage, so I thought I'd bring it up. Well, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, uh, I okay. <laughs> I, I have another point, but it doesn't really have anything to do with this. So we should. Uh, are there any anything else? I I probably need to be wrapping up pretty quick. Okay. Nope. I think no, that I'm was, good. Okay. Yeah, that that was mainly it. Good. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of A History of Christian Theology. Next week we will do another episode from um, Africans Against the World, and then we'll be uh, doing a few weeks on Ambrose of Milan. So thank you, um, and uh, hopefully you'll hear from us next week.